Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for coming by, man. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Likewise. Roy Cameron at the kitchen table, just like I've always wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Complete with some chilled wine as well. <laughs> That's how we do it. That's how we do it. It's, uh, couldn't, have, I couldn't have asked for more. It's perfect. <laughs> Well, maybe better wine at room temperature, but this will this will do in a pinch. Roy Cameron, drummer extraordinaire. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm judging by your accent. <laughs> you have to start there. Really? I expected so much I know, more. I know. I, to be honest, I've been thinking about. Let me guess. You're from the old country. <laughs> And I was going to say something like, I'm detecting a Boston accent. <laughs> I've been literally thinking about this all day. <laughs> oh, God. Well, it's definitely north. It's definitely a northern <laughs> accent. So, you know, you're, you're in the right ballpark, I suppose. <laughs> when, um, um, when did you move here? It will be, uh, this is my 23rd year. I moved here. Well, to Florida. I moved to Florida uh, at the end of uh, 1998, October 1998. Okay. <clears throat> and was that for was that for work? No, it was for it was for love. Oh my! <laughs> well, yes, my ex-wife uh, was from uh, Tallahassee. Okay. And we met in London. I was there uh, for school, and so was she. Um, FSU have a campus in London. She was there doing theater. Okay. And she happened to be at one of my gigs. I was playing with the uh, original band I was in in London. So that's how we met. Uh, anyway, fast forward and we decided, hey, why don't you just move to the States? And we we're like, oh, okay, you know, we're young. I was 24. She was 22. And we looked into the whole visa process, the fiance visa, and we did mm -hmm. the whole thing. And really before I knew what was happening, I was landing in Florida at the end of 1998. Wow. <laughs> so it was, I moved here for her. That's, yeah. That was really it. We just thought, get you here and then we'll figure it out. Figure it out kind of the rest. Out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but talk to me about um, growing up and, you know, like when did you, when did you find the drums? How did that, I mean, do you have brothers and sisters? One brother, older brother. Okay. Yeah. Um, I love talking about the the relationship, the sibling relationship, and how having older siblings, specifically regarding music, can be beneficial because they're bringing in music that maybe you wouldn't have heard. Was that the case? Are you in a from a musical family? Yeah, definitely. My dad, um, my dad played guitar and sang, and he used to play in, in bands. And um, and where where is this in Scotland? In a, a town called Ayr which is in the southwest. It's kind of 45 minutes from Glasgow. Okay. As a as a reference. Okay. Um, quite, you know, small by American standards. You know, I think maybe when I was growing up, maybe 65,000, something like that. Okay. You know? um, but he was in, my dad played like kind of folk and folk groups. Uh -huh. uh, and he would sometimes play like little bars and like almost a little circuit on the west coast of Scotland with different friends of his. And is this, is this like um, contemporary original music or, or was it more kind of traditional? They or? were doing like traditional covers of, they were doing covers of folk music, okay. Irish and Scottish. Mm -hmm. 
I would think, yeah. And he yeah. was a he was a, a, a like a full time professional musician, or just kind of like a weekend he, hobbyist with buddies and yeah. Yeah, he was the weekend, uh, not a weekend warrior. He wasn't really doing it for money. He was doing it for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, it went it went hand in hand. He was also a climber, um, so it kind of went hand in hand with that. A lot of the guys were also musicians, and you know they would go mountain climbing during the day and then play music at night or whatever cool. um, but no professionally he was a teacher he was a school teacher okay yeah um, what was his what was his uh math math yeah mm-hmm. and then and then he became a like a assistant or deputy head teacher okay before he retired uh-huh and uh, my mother um she she always i, I always knew she was musical because I, I could always hear her sing and i it was always on it was always in key it was always on pitch as well and, uh-huh and then I later found out that before my brother and I were born, um, my parents used to go to these folk jam sessions almost and get up and they had a couple of songs that they would do oh. together. I had no idea about this till a few years ago. So no that kidding. Cool. That's awesome. Um, Is that how they met? Kind of? No, they met at high school. Actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. High school sweethearts. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They met there. Um, I mean, it didn't last, but <laughs> <laughs> but they met there. Yeah. Um, my dad had come from Glasgow and um, moved down to here because my grandfather, my papa, got the uh, job as the bakery manager at the main bakery in Ayr. So that's why they moved down. And that's okay. uh, my parents. That's how they met. And you grew up in Ayr? I grew up in Ayr. And yep. how, how much older is your brother? Uh, almost five years. Okay. Yeah. So uh, uh, enough of a difference in age that that he probably did hear music that you know either wasn't on the radio or wasn't the stuff that you were into. Like, what was he listening to? Well, that's the thing. I I was very much in my brother's shadow. You know, I wanted to be learning off him and be around him. You know, he. I was kind of the annoying little brother. Let's. I mean, I really was a pain in the ass. I was. I used to torment him and I was you know when, when he didn't want to hang out I would tease him I was horrible I was a little shit I really was but uh, but we you know we eventually got along great of course but um but yes I was always intrigued by whatever he was listening to I was always checking out and taking what I loved and, and what I didn't you know mm-hmm. from it um do you remember some of those early ones that you loved and that you didn't love yeah absolutely um the main one, which became really the main catalyst for me becoming really obsessed with the drums, was uh, the band Marillion, hmm. which a lot of people in America are not familiar with. Um, they're British progressive rock band in the vein of Genesis, early Genesis. Like when they came out in the early '80s, it was like '83. They were they were panned a little bit by the critics as a Genesis ripoff because the singer would do you know makeup kind of like Peter Gabriel, mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but progressive music. Or progressive rock music, like especially in the early days, was very theatrical. Right. So there were there were props, there was sure. costumes. You know, that's yeah. how it was. So yeah. But musically, I, I, I something caught my attention. You know, I just loved I loved the the melody. Is I've I've always been drawn to melody first, hmm. um, and then you know it was years of persuasion before I was able to get drums. Hmm. Uh, to, who, to play. Who did you have to persuade? Yourself? Or no, your... my parents. Oh, yeah? Yeah, oh, yeah. I wanted, I wanted drums early, early on. Um, uh, but anyway, so Marillion was the, was the band that, that 
the drumming of the drum kit obsession really started when I got obsessed with that band. Mm -hmm. So Marillion mm -hmm. were one, uh, Genesis, Iron Maiden, you know, ACDC. I wasn't really listening to them until I, until I heard it from my brother. Neil. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and what are, do you have any examples of this, of the bands you're like, I'm not interested. It, it wasn't so much that I wasn't interested. I just didn't get into them as much as him. There was uh let's see, um, like the cult, uh, no, not the cult. Um, I like the cult. Uh, there's a band called Hawkwind that my brother was really, really obsessed with. I just, they were a little, they were good, but they were too obscure for me. I couldn't just sit and listen to it. It was, uh -huh. it was a little too out there. Um, mm -hmm. If my brother hears this, he'll, he'll laugh. <laughs> he won't be happy either. <laughs> um, so, but, but, but really, honestly, there weren't many. You know, I, I kind of think I was very much a follower at that stage. You know, mm -hmm, I was, you know and so I figured if he was, if he was into it, then it's probably good. I should be into it too. You right, know? right. Um, I think I had a similar, uh, you know, relationship in, in that way with my brothers. I have two older brothers, and one is six, and one is ten years older than me. And yeah, the music that they were bringing into the house was was typically much different, you know, than what my parents were listening to for sure. Yeah. Um, and I agree. I kind of I lived in his, in my middle brother's shadow because he was a guitar player and I really wanted to play the drums and mm -hmm. and uh, so it's it's I think it's a similar experience and when you're at that age let's say ten or eleven that five or six year gap is such a huge change you yes. know you know you're going from a little kid to a little adult you know um, yeah always always tagging along. Uh, listening, you know, listening to his records and playing his guitar and, and, you know, I think that's just what you do until you can form, you know, your own kind of identity yes. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and like I said, it was always melody for me. Like the, my mother said the best present they ever got me was a, a Fisher Price record player when I was two, because I was still obsessed with it at the age of five. Like I was still playing, you know, I had it all memorized. I could she said to me that I could hear something once or twice and then sing it back mm. quite easily. And so it's a combination of that. And then the other obsession I had as a kid uh, was with the uh, Scottish pipe bands, bagpipe bands. Mm. So, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like, so basically uh, a lot of bagpipes and a lot of drums marching yeah. and playing traditional Scottish music. And the the feel and the sound of that when they walk past you, I mean, it hits you in the guts and mm -hmm. it's just, I think whenever the first time I saw that, that's when the drum obsession really began and bagpipe. I was obsessed with the whole thing. I loved it. We had to, my parents would take me every Saturday if we could to this park where the pipe band would play. We'd go every, every chance we could. Cool. Um, you know, I just, it was obvious. I was just obsessed, yeah. just completely obsessed. But they didn't want, you know, we lived in a, we lived in a nice house, but it was a, it was a terrace. So it was 15 houses all joined together. Okay. Yeah. There's no way they were going to let me have drums. Right. It just wasn't going to happen. You right. know? So they tried keyboard lessons. Uh, I had taught myself while well, my brother had taught me a bit as well, uh, guitar, some chords, because my brother had been learning guitar from my dad and then he'd been taking lessons. So I had, you know, I was like, well, I need to, I want to do that too. Right, right. And I taught myself enough to teach I learned enough to, te to teach myself how to play, you know, U2 songs and things that I was into that mm -hmm. I could play. Um, but it was, I think I was 14 before they finally, parents finally said, Caved. okay, okay <laughs> get your drum set, <laughs> see if it lasts. Do you remember, do you remember what that first kit was? 
I don't remember the brand because I think it was a no name. Uh-huh. It was bright orange though. It was probably in in hindsight it's probably some kind of made in Japan no name thing that was probably fine. Yeah. You know, and it was it was just your standard cheap drum set that came with a couple of cheap cymbals. Yeah. And I really didn't know how to set it up at first. Right. You know, I kind of just mimicked what I saw on whatever videos I had and Right. Right. And uh but then I realized I remember realizing early that that basically once you learn a simple beat you can play to hundreds of songs right. you know there's there's obviously slight variations but generally speaking once you get the right. basic thing together you can play along with anything you right. know I remember that discovery I had a friend in the room and I was like wait a minute this is basically the same as that and it's almost the same as this right <laughs> it like, well it's the same <laughs> thing like uh, you learn four chords on the guitar and you can play thousands and thousands of songs they're mm-hmm. just different melodies you know right and you arrange those four chords in different ways and you have you know popular music you know exactly. any number of popular tunes so <clears throat> yeah that's that's funny I, I my my first drum set was a was a Remo oh yeah Remo kit it didn't have lugs. It ha- it was a clip-on heads. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I was working with. That's nice. Yeah, but then but then my folks got me roto toms. Oh, nice. And then that was I was like, this is it, man. This is the best drum kit ever. My first kit actually came with a set of roto toms, but I didn't know what to do with them at first. <laughs> I, I was like, I've got no, there's no, I couldn't figure out where to put them. Yeah, you know? but yeah, very yeah. quickly I found a way. You know, as. A, <laughs> As a drummer, right. like it wasn't long before I persuaded my parents to get me a second kit that I could attach to my first kit and oh. make a double bass kit. Because that's what yeah. Marillion's drummer, Iron Maiden, or no, actually, Iron Maiden didn't have one. But anyway, that was the thing back in the 80s, two right. bass drums. I mean, you yeah. had to have it. Yeah. And, um, and that was my thing. I wanted two bass drums. I wanted four rag toms, two floor toms. You know, that was, I was trying to play Marillion's music note for note because I had become so obsessed with it. I knew all of it inside out. Um, and then I did the same with you too. <laughs> yeah, this is so early teen, early teenage years. Yeah, yeah, like fourteen is when I started when I got the kit, uh-huh. and I was I was fifteen when I met this this guitarist named Cameron Blackwood, who happened to know all the U two songs on guitar, and he was very good. Perfect. He wasn't at the same high school as me, but I'd heard about him, and we met at some party or something. And I invited him over and he came over to my living room and we just went through the whole U2 catalog. That's awesome. And it was, you know, it was great. It I'm was, sure that's one of those moments where it's like anything is possible. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. We can play this music. We will rule the world, you know, <laughs> one bar gig at a time. We'll, well take that over. Incidentally, it, it was his, it was because of him that I went to London to go to MI okay. in the first place. Like fast forward to when... I was twenty. It was I was twenty-two when I moved down there. Um, I had already done a two-year course in hotel and catering management and was working as a manager in that field, basically. In airs. In air. Yeah, in air. And still, and yeah, I had a job. Uh, I was managing a first of all a bar and then a, a theater restaurant. Mm-hmm. But I was always playing drums on the side or somewhere. I was I still had a band, and I had recorded a demo in a band with Cameron a few years ago. Prior to that, and he had sent this demo to MI and had been accepted to MI on based the, on the demo. On the demo, and I was like, "Well, I'm on that demo, like, right? Maybe I, you know, I just had to get the money together." Yeah, and so it was his fault. <laughs> but that's <laughs> so I was like, "Well, again, it was like, well, 
you won't know until you try. You know, yeah. my, my parents were always very supportive. And it was like, well, if it doesn't work out, just come back. You right. know, it's no big deal. And just, did you play, like, did your high school have, you know, like a concert band mm-hmm. or a jazz program or anything like that? Did you do that? I did not. They had a, they had a, a concert band, but I wasn't, I wasn't interested in that. Um, I saw it, I liked the music and I appreciated it. But I didn't like the fact that the drummer was just sitting there for a while and then just playing or whatever. Right. I wanted to be playing rock and roll. I will follow. Like I wanted to be right. playing U two songs or right. whatever with a band. So that's what I did. I, f- mm. I formed a band instead. And yeah, you know that's. Did you- I got way more interest from girls as well? Right. Know? We played. I play. I remember playing two because Cameron was at a different high school from me. We got to play two end of. Uh, oh, term okay. gigs one at mine and one at his yeah so double the attention perfect and it's you know it's an early lesson and and what the, the power of music <laughs> <laughs> but 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 again it's 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 that kind of thing it's like you know when you discover that for the first time and you get that f- great feeling of playing with friends when it's just there's no thinking involved and you're just playing the music uh, it's there's nothing like it. You know, when you want to you want to get there every time. You right. Play like that as much as possible. Um, and did that? Did that? First of all, what was that band called? Uh, let's see. That that band was called. Uh, the, he stole this from somebody else. Koyana Skatsy. I don't know. It's got the word scat in there. <laughs> sounds like a, it. Sounds like a German thing. But it's not. It was some kind of Brazilian word, that, and I think he'd actually. He said he made it up, but I found out later that he. He mixed, just found he it, it from somebody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Koyana Skassi. It was all one word. Uh-huh. It was it was weird. And you were gigging in bars at that time? No, because we were too young. Uh, you know, we were just... We just played at um, at the school. And then we didn't start playing out until, until we were a little bit older. You know, mm-hmm. once we got past 18 and we were in a different band at that point. Um, then we started playing in, in bars or whatever, you know. And you said you moved to London kind of tw- at 22. So what did you do after high school to 22? That's when I went and did the uh, the hotel and catering thing. Oh, right. So I left school when I finished. I finished all six years of, of school. It's different over there. Right. High school is obviously different. But I was 17 when I left. So the same age as people over here. Yeah. But um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I was kind of clueless. I wanted, well, I knew I wanted to play drums. But right. at that point, there were no schools in, in Scotland that, that offered anything like that. And I didn't have the qualifications to go and study music, which I didn't want to do anyway, because right. I didn't need a music degree. Right. So I remember sitting there with, with my parents, just looking at these college prospectus and just like, I don't know, like, what, how about catering? Because like, my, my papa had been a baker. Ah, right, and I, I had right. tried, you know, I had done some cooking. I thought, oh, and why not? Like, yeah, <laughs> I might enjoy that. Yeah. So I just I just went. I just picked that course and and went to. It was up in Glasgow, so only forty five minutes up the road, and uh, I, that was me moving away from home for the first time. Okay. So I went and did that course for two years, and in that time, I, you know, turned eighteen, so I was able to start working in one of the local bars in Ayr, uh, and then when I graduated college, they hired me full-time as assistant manager and then I became manager and then um and then I went to manage the theater restaurant when the theater the theater local theater had been refurbished and was being reopened and they wanted somebody over there to run the new cafe bar so 
I got that gig. Yeah. And uh, I was still always playing drums on the side. I still always had a band somewhere, you know. We were right. still just playing, either doing little gigs wherever we could or just playing once a week still, you know. Yeah. Um, but then that's when I that's when I got, you know, that's when Cameron got accepted to a thing in London and yeah. we said, okay. And you had let's had go. you had you been to London before? No. No, wow. never. So just going in cold. Mm-hmm. And mm. we went down to check it out. We went down to kind of meet the people, like to meet the the people at the college. They kind of gave us a, a, a tour around, and then we went and looked at some some possible uh, potential accommodation because I was going down with there was going to be me, my girlfriend at the time, Cameron, and two others, five of us looking for a house, uh-huh. and uh, three of us were going to the school. Um, so yeah, it was just, we went down one time to check it out, but then we came back and packed up a van, jam packed with stuff. And Cameron and I drove overnight to London (laughs) and that was it. And it was, it was, you know, it was, I had some great teachers and and now you're surrounded by just 24 hours, you know, how it is. It's just, I still have all my notes that I haven't been able to go through all of it. There's just so much information, you know. But it was it was perfect. It was um, it was. I, I mean, I just I, I knew before that, but once I was there and doing it, it was. I just knew that this was this wasn't going to change. It wasn't going to go away. I was going to play music, you know, yeah. try and do it forever. And at that time, I was just planning on staying in London after the college because Scotland's a very it's a pretty small country, as you know. So there's there are gigs, but they're really all taken. You know, unless oh. somebody dies or breaks an arm, there's not really any openings um whereas in london you've got more chance of you know it's bigger more competitive obviously but there are more gigs so that's that's what i was planning on doing but then i met my ex and ended up in florida so (laughs) (laughs) and that was the first time in the states oh my gosh landing in florida with with whatever i brought with me that was my first time to the states i'd never even been over before yeah well i was just going to ask you what was i mean what was london like as as just coming in completely fresh i mean it must have been like an uh, from another planet i mean like yeah i mean it was it was uh, i had been to hong kong when i was 16 so i knew what a busy yeah. cosmopolitan city felt like and i enjoyed that um but uh but yeah it was it was great it was it was frustrating at the same time because i was a student so i didn't have a lot of money to do Right. All the stuff. I mean, there's something happening every single night. Right. But, you know, costs money to get, to go into town, you know, because we had to live on, on, like, in the east side of town where it's cheaper. And so to go into central London, you have to have the travel card or whatever that right. allows you to travel. And, uh, you know, it's just adds up when you're a student. So I sure. had to pick and choose the things that we went out to see. Right. But having said that, it was great. Like, it was just... It's kind of like, I, I feel the same way when I go to New York. I yeah. always just feel energized. I always feel like I should be doing more. Yes. <laughs> you know, I feel, Completely. come back here and I feel like, okay, right. Get, let's get going. Like, right. you know, it's just, it's just a different pace. Has, has the same effect on me that New York does. Just it gets into my, gets under my skin, you mm. know, in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. Um, right. so, so you complete this program at MI? Yeah, it was just a one year. Oh, no kidding. It was a one year course. Wow. And uh, that, so MI was, uh, I guess it was like a franchise of the MI in California. You know, it's not there anymore. It's now called the London College of Contemporary Music, I think. But yeah, it was just a one-year course. Wow. And uh, they had 
they had a vocal one, a vocal course, a guitar course, a drum course, and a bass course. That was it. Huh. And then you know we had some, so I had some really great teachers, and um, a lot of them were gigging in and around London. Uh, one guy was actually uh, one of my teachers was a Scottish guy who's younger than me by a couple of years. Huh. He was really really good. This guy Neil Findlay, uh, great drummer, uh, and. We just we he had a, a love of Merlion as well, uh, and so we, we connected immediately. Yeah. And so even though he was in my mind leagues above me, we we, we just became really great friends. Yeah. But um, halfway through the course, he started to give me some, like some gigs, like some to sub for him, teaching gigs and a couple of playing things, and um, so that was cool. That was was like okay the it's on the right track if if the teachers right. ask you to sub you know right. like it's but right. it was it was i still it's hard to remember or it's hard to realize that i was still very young at that point like 22 and just taking a lot of this stuff in yeah um on a daily basis it was a lot and i all i had to practice on in my little house was a, a really crappy uh, practice pad kit because oh, again we were in right. close quarters to these you know I remember even the first time I played the practice pad kit <laughs> lady no banged, on the, uh, banged on the wall banged on the wall but then the next morning she came around with a bottle of wine and apologized she said I'm so sorry and I said oh that's okay and I, I, I showed her what I had yeah and I said look you know I'll, I'll keep it down oh she, she was so apologetic and so nice and she just was having a bad day she must have been having a bad day uh-huh. and after that I was fine but anyway that's that's all I had to practice on. We had some practice rooms at the college, uh, but you know, everybody wanted in those. There's only two of them or three of them, right. so you had to kind of get in early or schedule a time. So right. um, it was tough. It was you know, there's a lot of information coming in, and you just didn't have time to practice all of it or work on all of it. Right. But um, when I start, when I came over to the states and started working, that's when I started being able to you know, practice some of the stuff that I'd been working on at college or whatever, different yeah. styles of music and uh, that kind of thing, you know. Let's take a break and then we'll pick up, uh, we'll pick up you landing on the tarmac in Tallahassee, Florida. Orlando, Florida. Actually. Orlando. Orlando, the girlfriend, well, the ex-wife, oh, she was, right. she's from Tallahassee, but gotcha. I landed, I, I landed in Orlando and then um, we were living in Newport Ritchie to begin with, which is on the Tampa side. Okay. It's kind of northwest of Tampa. We were there because she had a dinner theater gig there. Uh-huh. And uh, so we had an apartment, little apartment there. So landed in Orlando, drove over to Newport Ritchie, saw my new apartment with my new soon-to-be wife. Oh, my God. Here we are. What a whirlwind. Um, but we moved to Orlando a year later when I got the gig at Disney. So we could talk about that All right. after the break. Perfect. You strike me as a, as a Mickey Mouse kind of guy. Well, I wore a costume. But I got paid more than those guys. <laughs> <laughs> we used to see characters actually fainting and passing out oh, during some of the parades. You can imagine. Yeah. 100 degree humidity in yeah. the summer. And you're wearing a and you're Pluto wearing outfit or for whatever. For 6.50 an hour. Like, oh, oh, my God. Oh, I think I can make it. Oh, no. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take a little break. Okay. You know, I, I listened to a lot of podcasts, especially last year, and one thing I find super annoying is when 
advertisements are always the same. I just fast forward. Well, guess what? This podcast is sponsored by Santan Brewing Company. Oh, maybe you didn't. Maybe you skipped this. I don't know. Maybe you didn't. I hope you didn't. They've been very gracious supporting this podcast. And I told them that every ad would be unique. That is my that is my promise to them. So promise me that you will try them out. Santambrewing.com. Let's talk about uh, Orlando. Yeah, so uh, landed at, like I said, it landed in Newport Ritchie first, and uh, it took a few months to get the work authorization and stuff sorted out. Um, but once I did, um, my ex and I just started doing like we signed up with a temp agency and started doing temp work. She still had her dinner theater gig, but that was at night. So, and I didn't have and, any. Wait, explain to me. What 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 was she doing in this dinner? Oh, she was singing. And, oh, okay. and performing. You okay. know that was her that was her thing. Uh, you know the idea was that we were going to be you know pursuing our careers together. You know mm-hmm. her doing theater, singing, whatever, me drumming. Mm-hmm. But um, so first of all, I wanted to get work authorization just so I could start making money, and we signed up with a temp agency. Um, <laughs> working refinancing people's mortgages and at that time you know my accent it's i don't i don't think it's ever been particularly strong but it's probably stronger than it was than it is now yeah Uh, and here i am on the phone with people talking to them about their mortgages you know and and uh you know some people would say well i i can't understand what you're saying but i'll just listen to you talk all day (laughs) stuff like this you know (laughs) you're like refinance your mortgage lady (laughs) i'm like it's not that difficult Anyway, um, so I didn't have any music gigs at first, but then um, found in a local local rag or local jam magazine, I think it whatever. I found uh, a Bee Gees tribute band looking for a drummer, and I went and auditioned for that and got that gig. And I also went and auditioned for a local original band just so I could start playing with mm-hmm. somebody, um, and I got that gig too. Uh, and so now I had something, and we uh, the Bee Gees thing ended up. I ended up doing a fly date with them shortly after that to Rhode Island. Uh, they had a gig booked, so that was cool. It was like all of a sudden I'm getting to fly around, you know, yeah. the, not around the states, but get to see something I wasn't expecting to see. Um, but then the uh, the same magazine, Jam Magazine, there was an audition for Disney that came up, uh, and it was very vague. It said. Um, Drummers will be asked to perform on multiple toms. And I thought, I thought well, what can that mean? Like, I just imagined a big drum set, like, right. you know, like Phil Collins or something like that, right. like playing in the air tonight over and over. Um, and I thought, well, I'll, you know, might as well do it. And so um, I drove over to the audition. Uh, on a Friday afternoon after my gig at the mortgage place in rush hour, you know, it was awful from yeah. Tampa to Orlando, just the worst. Ah. Uh, but I get there and I was late. It was one of the last there and I got, I got there. So I had plenty of time to see what was happening. Um, I could see in the room when they were opening the door and the guys were coming in. They gave us some music to look at. They're like, these are the rhythms we're going to get you to play. And I looked at it. It was pretty simple. 
but I looked at, you know, I was able to see in the room and basically it was like, um, it, it, there were five, it was, it was a, a group of five drums on a frame, mm-hmm. a big one in the middle, a small one above that, a slightly bigger one to each side. And then so maybe six drums altogether. And uh, people were standing up in front of it and playing it like taiko, like Japanese drummers, mm-hmm. if you've ever seen mm-hmm. them, big arm movements. Mm-hmm. And I, and I almost went home. I was like, <laughs> "This is not what I. This is not what I thought this was going to be. Multiple right. toms. What is this? You know, there were. It was basically like almost like Irish drums, like the Bowran, yeah, but mounted vertically to be hit right. like this. You know. And I thought, this is very strange, you know, this is not what I'm here for, but I've driven two hours, I might as well stay. So I stayed, and I made the first round, got called back, they're like, can you come back tomorrow? And I thought, no, but I did, I went back. Uh, by that time, I was starting to get excited, because I thought, well, you know, get hired by Disney, this could be, you know. Yeah, it could this, lead to other stuff. This could lead, this will be the end of the day job. Right. Because it was going to be, it was for a thing, This so this was in the summer of 1999, and they were going to be starting at the end of the year, or October 1999, they were going to be starting at Epcot a parade called the Tapestry of Nations. And it was a big millennium parade mm-hmm. at Epcot celebrating all the different countries. And it had a great piece of music written by um, Gavin Greenaway, who's a big movie composer, um, along the lines of Hans Zimmer. You know, he's mm-hmm. that, that level of guy so they had this whole thing and it was going to be you know it was going to be a big deal and so i thought well maybe it'll be be fun so i went back the second day and passed that as well and that was it and then a couple of months went by and they they said you know we'll be in touch a couple of months went by and they got in touch with you know scheduled for rehearsals and uh they were it was intense it was eight hour blocks of rehearsals um in the evening and then and uh, first of all we so we were just we had sheets of plywood up against the wall with outline of the drum on it and the sheet music and we were just going through it section by section and learning standing up playing the Mm -hmm. thing now eventually we were going to be standing on floats with a giant wheel in the middle with four of these drum units on it and the wheel rotates so you have to be playing it as it rotates Mm. but Mm. as we were learning it it's stationary up against Mm -hmm. the wall right Mm -hmm. it's it's hard to describe but that's what it was we're all in a giant warehouse each with a sheet of plywood up against the wall with the outline of this drum on it learning the music for eight hours at a time with breaks and they fed us you know it was it's disney so it was it was paid well and they took care of us and then it was dress rehearsal time and the dress rehearsals had to be done uh, when the park was closed. So those were midnight to eight in the morning <laughs> with a break. Like we're, they, they fed us a Thanksgiving dinner at 4 a.m. at the American Adventure. And there I am, you know, like a year off the boat from Scotland and just out there in the middle of Crazy. Epcot. It was very, it was surreal. Very surreal. It really was. But like I said, it, 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 was, it was a good opportunity because um, I was able to basically pick uh, what, how many days I wanted to work. It was a seven-day-a-week thing. Oh, right, right. And they, they needed 30 drummers a night. There were, there were um, yeah, there were 15 floats with two drummers per float. And so they hired like 75 drummers to cover a full schedule. Um, 
and uh, during the rehearsals they kind of split us into A and B depending on how well you were picking up the stuff and I was I got into the A group and I was able to pick what I wanted and I picked Sunday through Thursday I'll take those five days because wow. I had a I had a wedding gig I had joined a wedding band by this point um, and they were keeping me busy uh, on the weekend so I left my Fridays and Saturdays open for that and so now Great. Now the full-time career starts, yeah. you know, and it, yeah. that was it. And again, like, you know, you, you hear from a lot of people when you get your foot in the door at Disney, that's really, you know, you still have to audition for things. But once you're there, it definitely benefits you. You know, that that parade was only supposed to be a year long, but it was it was really, really popular. And, um, and so it ended up lasting through March 2003. Oh, wow. Now they dwindled it down to almost nothing. You know, it wasn't... It wasn't 15 floats, it was five floats by the end. Uh, but it was still a gig for a lot of us. Uh, and then when that ended, I had a year off from Disney, but then an audition came up for a thing at the Animal Kingdom. So I went along to that, knew everybody there, and did the audition, got that gig. Yeah. Um, that led to me le- meeting somebody else who needed a sub-drummer for the Celtic rock band over at Elpco- Epcot. So then I got started subbing on that gig as well. And that's what I did. I was doing that up until I left yeah. Orlando, 2008. Which, 2008. Yeah, yeah. And then you came here directly or? Yeah, came came to Phoenix. Yeah. And what, what brought you here? My ex-wife again. Ah. Yeah, she, uh, she got a nice job out here in 2007. And so, and they, they provided accommodation, um, they provided accommodation and uh, she said, let's, you know, let's see how it goes before we make the commitment to move all the way across the country. You know, I'll come home when I can. I've got this place in Phoenix, see how the job goes. Anyway, the job went, was going really, really well. This was before the big crash, of course, in 2008. Um, And so... That's sometime in 2008, we decided, okay, I'll, I'll move too. So we looked into renting our Orlando place and then me just packing up and driving across the country. Were, were you kind of ready at that point to get out of Florida or to get out of the whole Disney thing? Yeah, uh, we were. We had been, before she got that job offer in Phoenix, we'd been talking about moving to either LA or New York, you know, somewhere bigger and, and more competitive with bigger jobs and whatnot. Um, I, I, you know, I had a nice, steady group of of gigs, but I, I think I was ready for a change. I was I was kind of tired of a lot of it, um, so I was open to the idea of leaving it all behind and starting again. You know, because first of all, her new job was paying so much that it was easy for me to not have to worry about working immediately when I got to Phoenix. I could take my time and get to know people and do some networking, do and, a little networking and, yeah. and whatever. And, um, and so there wasn't a lot of pressure to, you know, immediately find a lot of work. So that was nice. Um, so yeah, I, I think we were both ready and with her being from, from Florida, she was definitely ready to get out of there, you know, yeah. and, and uh, move somewhere um, a bit more challenging, I suppose. Um, so yeah, that was 2008. And nice. um, uh, that was just pre-Facebook as well. So I was a member of this uh, drumming forum called House of Drumming. Uh, and so I posted on there, I'm like, hey, I'm moving to Phoenix, what's the scene like? And um, Ebert Gepner yeah. got back to me. Here's my phone number, really cool. Uh, and and also Randy Walker. I had met Randy Walker. I don't know if you know Randy too. He's another drummer in town. He's a drummer and engineer in town also. Um, 
I got to know him through the forum, and he actually came to Orlando in 2003 with his, with his ex for business, and we had met and hung out or whatever. But Ebert, um, when I posted on the board, he's like, hey, here's my number, give me a call. You know, yeah, and and he was super cool, and so we arranged when I came out here for the first time to check out Phoenix. I met Eb, and we went to his lockup, and he had a couple of drum sets set up, and we played. And he's like, "Oh man, you can you know you can have some of my gigs when I leave town." He was heading to Nashville. Nashville, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I ended up getting his church gig, which I still had until the pandemic hit. Wow! Wow! <laughs> so I'd had that since 2009. I'd been doing that one. Wow! And then. Uh, uh, another uh, really nice lady that he introduced me to, Ricky Wright. She has another church gig. I, I just did one on Saturday with mm. Doug, with Doug Mann and mm. Bob Willicks. I've been doing that gig thanks to Eb. So he was really cool. He introduced me to the right That's people, awesome. and he introduced me to Matt Goodman. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was like, "Give this guy a call." Um, and then he actually took me to the rhythm room. He's like, "Let's go check out Bad Sneakers. Let's go and." And I was like, okay, cool. And Great we so got to meet Matt. We went to the Five and Diner afterwards. Of course. And that that whole relationship was born. <laughs> that, <laughs> the Five and sealed, Diner. That sealed the deal. Yeah. For sure. Yes. Yes. That's funny. And then my house, of course, that I ended up buying, which I don't have anymore, was walking distance from the Five and Diner. So that's oh, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's right over here then. You yeah, were over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It was. That place is dangerous. Many, yes, it many, is. Many, many late nights eating... Not, I mean, good food, but not necessarily good for so you. So many waffles. Yeah, so, <laughs> all the waffles. So many waffles. <laughs> and then the franchise, like there's a, they had a thing called the franchise, which I don't know if they still have it. I hope they do. Back then, though, uh, Goodman would dare dare Adam or Mijo to eat it. He's like, I'll give you five bucks if you order that and eat it. <laughs> and it's like a, I think it was a bacon and cheese filled hot dog covered with something else, wrapped in bacon, something absolutely <laughs> just heart stopping, you know. And I'm I'm assuming Adam did it. I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah, it. Of yeah at least once. Yeah, at least once. Yeah, and collected his five dollar reward. <laughs> There's but, not much he won't do for five dollars. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, that was. Um, I, I felt like I was introduced to the right people quite quite quickly. Yeah. Um, and Randy, actually, Randy Walker, the other guy who I, I met before I came here. He'd been working with, um, in a kind of a blues trio with a guy named Harry McGraw, who lives in the East Valley, and Tracy Mortimer, who's a bass player that's been around for a long time in the Valley. And uh, he was kind of looking for a sub in that band. So that became my band. I started, I took over from Randy because he was just not wanting to do it anymore. And so I ended up, I found myself, you know, booking a bar trio around town for gigs, which I'd never done. Like back in Florida, I had never done bar gigs. I went straight into a wedding band. And so it was all corporate and wedding stuff. And that just kept me busy. I did a couple of bar gigs with the original bands that I mm-hmm. briefly was in, but not on a weekly basis. I'd never done the bar scene. So that was, when I moved here, that was a new thing for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but great. I loved it. You know, I liked the, I liked the freedom of it. You know, I liked the lack of tuxedos. I liked the lack of brides. Uh, I like the lack of YMCA, right, right, stuff like that. You know, yeah. so it was a totally different. Thing. And there was definitely a freedom to 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 open up and play more. You know, stretch a little bit more on right. gigs. You know, it's a bar; nobody cares mostly. Right. Um, so that was that kept me busy, and that that led to me meeting people like Chuck Hall and mm. 
and then you know yeah and um wow so so kind of quickly found the community and started finding some some work yeah and um did you didn't you do you said you went to sweden with chuck hall but did you do other other touring other tours at that point um no not before that Mm -hmm. not not really anyway um i mean not here in phoenix yeah um Chuck was really, I met him in 2010. I did my first gig with him, uh, just filling in for his drummer at that time. But then we, we started working more and more. Um, and I, I remember hoping that it was going to come up because I'd, I'd heard about these tours and I'd you know, looked, looked him up on, the vi- on videos. And, uh, and then it came up, you know, this little, just a two-week tour in yeah. Sweden. Love it. And it was just fantastic, yeah. you know. And because Sweden's obviously close to Scotland, my mother was able to fly over to Stockholm and there meet me go. for a couple of days, which was really great. Awesome. And uh, it was fantastic. It was cold as hell. We were there in November. Oh, yeah. So really cold. Like, it was basically 40 degrees day and night. It didn't really change. <laughs> you know, even when it was sunny, still 40. Right, it didn't matter. right, right. But it was just absolutely beautiful, you know. Amazing yeah. country, great people, fun gigs, great. You know, they... they 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 love authentic as you well know. Yeah, European audiences love authentic American music, yes. regardless of the genre. Really, really. So yes, exactly. You know, these people are just going insane for. And Chuck's the real deal. He's a Texas blues guitarist. He's yeah. the he's not fake. He's not. Yeah, I'm not going to name names, but he's not fake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that that is that is so true. That is definitely something that that you notice kind of very quickly on any European tour. I mean, you can be in in the Czech Republic or Germany or the Netherlands or Denmark or Norway. If it's real, authentic American music, it can be bluegrass, jazz, you know, singer, songwriter, folk, whatever, rock and roll, you know, uh, there's just a level of appreciation that is, it's so immediately... Um, you can feel it immediately. Yeah, you know, yeah. and that, and you know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm dying to get back. I'm daydreaming about the next, the next tour. But you have anything on the on the cards yet? Well, um, we had a tour last fall that got moved to this fall, and you know, I talked to my booking agent not too long ago, and and he seems to think that it's all going to go down. Um, so it'd be the end of October through the middle of November. Oh, if, great! If it if it if it does, yeah, um, my fingers are crossed. Um, but yeah, that I, I miss that too. And the rooms are nice. You know, like the venues are great. Yes, that the PAs are typically like top of the line. Yes, sound guys are like really sweet. <laughs> you know, they're yeah. not like right. crusty, <laughs> hate their life, or whatever. They love what they do. They just want you to sound great and want you to feel comfortable. The green room yeah. hospitality is great. Like they just take it fucking serious. And it's like, man, what a breath of fresh air. And you're yeah. seeing this beautiful country and you're meeting these beautiful people. And, you know, it's like, man, this is it. I could do this more than not. You know, I could do this <laughs> 10 months out of the year and, and be totally cool with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when did you, um, when did you connect with Matthew and the, and vinyl station? Uh, so that was, uh, just basically a year later, it was towards the end of 2014. Um, I was playing at Casimir's uh, bar in Scottsdale with, um, 
uh, Matt Weddle for okay. the first time. Okay. Obadiah Parker. Yeah. Um, and um, Alex Kine was on bass. So it was me and Alex and, and Matt and Ted. And I, I played, did my first gig. It, it wasn't that great of a gig for me. You know, I had a couple of stumbles and I just remember leaving that gig or, or just remember not. Wasn't my best gig, I thought, at all, you know. But I do remember I was playing and I see these two guys come in and they sit down and they're just eyeballing me. It was Matthew and Brendan. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, well, they're definitely musicians because they look really cool. Like they, <laughs> And they had, they just come from a gig. Right. Uh, and they were just staring at me the whole time. I'm like, oh shit! Like I feel like I'm being examined <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah. And uh, so we took we took our first break, and, and Matthew kind of you know came over, and you know he's six five, like yeah. he's just over me, and and really complimentary. So that's how we met, and um, we kind of hit it off, and I hit it off with Brendan as well. We were just chatting, and in the course of the evening, they told me that they had a potential tour in the books with uh, Rob Thomas for the following summer of 2015. Um, but they weren't sure about it. They were still a duo at that point. They had just added Alex. Um, and they were about to do their first gig with Alex the following Monday at Crescent in the little third of a Crescent. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Up front there, the lounge or whatever. Yes. And, and so I remember I went to that. Uh, and I was blown away. I was like, what a sound for three people. Like Matthew, there was no drummer, but he had the kick drum at that time. Right, right. And just adding that underneath these great melodies and, you know, Brendan had some nice parts. I was like, this is great. This is really great. I'd love to work with these guys or whatever. And then, and that was, that was like January, I think, beginning of January. And then I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear anything until March. And I think it was the day of the gig. It was a Tuesday, and uh, Matthew called me in the afternoon. He's like, "Hey, can you play with me at the Vic tonight?" I forgot Brendan's out of town, you know. But now I know this is classic. This is classic Matthew. Uh, and I was like, at that time, I lived over here, so I was like, yeah, "Sure, it's five minutes. I can be yeah. there." And so Brendan was out of town all week, and I did that that gig with him, and it went really well. Me and him up at the Vic. Uh, I feel like that was kind of an audition in a way, you know. I did that gig, and then we did another couple that week that went really well. And then again, a few weeks went by, and then Brendan called me and said, okay, we're looking at a few drummers, and you're one of them, you know. What's your price to go on the road? And so I, I told him and didn't hear anything for a few weeks. <laughs> and then he called back and said, uh, it looks like it's on. Wow. And we'd love to, you know. And do it with you and Alex. So that was it. That was how that, yeah. that started. And, and, you know, it was very much, we hadn't played together very much at all. And now we're driving to Ohio. Right. To, to the first. In like a minivan, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honda Odyssey, baby. Like some, like, didn't he like borrow it? Or like, well, like yeah, it was donated. It was a friend. Yeah. Donated it for the, for the, for the tour. For the tour. Yeah. We took care of it too. We, regular oil changes and. It was reliable, it, it, yeah. you know, it served as well. But yeah, we lived in that thing because we didn't, obviously we were, we were the, we weren't really even supposed to be on the tour, especially the the first one. Mm -hmm. The first one, it was just supposed to be Rob and the plain white tees. Right, right. I remember that. But Rob had, uh, Rob's tour manager was Vinyl Station's manager at that time. And so Rob had heard the music and 
really loved it and found a way to get vinyl station a 20 minute slot at the beginning wow. of the night but you know we did have to get our own way around there was no there was no sure. bus there was no bus or anything like that nothing in the budget for like a couple rooms even right no there wasn't but they uh but what they did uh early on i mean we had we had quite a network of of places around the country to stay with matthew has a big family so right. there's people all over but early on i think in the tour the somebody in the management figured out that the bus driver's hotel rooms um are, are paid for basically through the night but the bus drivers don't uh, use them yeah they're because they're on the road right and so the, the you know the drivers would typically be leaving there to come back to the venue and so they would just have the you know the workers come by make up the room and and they would leave the keys for us oh great and so we would have we would end up having hotel rooms yeah which was massive you I know bet. not every time but it really saved us because yeah we had you know we had no money yeah we were really relying on merchandise sales for any money 2015 uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. wow yeah but that wasn't the only tour that you guys did right you did you did a couple yeah so we did we did the summer we did the summer tour with the plain white tees and then we did the fall tour without the plain white tees um for whatever reason, uh, those guys um, were not asked to come back and they asked us to be the only opening band. So that was really great. Awesome. So it was just a one-month thing, but it was a 40-minute slot and then Rob, you know. So wow. it was it was really great. It was more, you know, a lot more exposure, more time. Do you have any, um, any favorite venues that you played? Oh, for sure. Um, the Beacon. Yeah, in New York. Yep. The Beacon in New York, um, the Ryman, um, Austin City, Austin City Limits. Yeah, you know, That's super cool. Probably the uh, I think it was the Mohegan Sun, just because of the size of it. That was the biggest one we did. That's I in think. Connecticut. Uh, is it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Big casino yeah. venue, and it, I think it was eight or nine thousand, and a, and a lot of them were there. When we were playing, yeah, I just right. remember that it was just it was insane. Yeah, it was really insane. Uh, but m most of the venues were were really nice. Excuse me, nice um, old theaters, right? Downtown theaters, you know, just beautiful old venues that you can get lost in. Many a Vinyl Station moment. Get, I mean, Vinyl Station, <laughs> Spinal Tap, <laughs> right? Many right. a Spinal Tap moment backstage, <laughs> like trying to find the stage. You know, <laughs> you end up in the closet. <laughs> But that's what they're like. They they really are like that. They're yeah. you know they're beautiful old venues, but they're old. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that was that was that was a great experience. Um, and then the next thing after that, we didn't get to do because it was an Australian tour. So that's just Australia has a policy, I believe, where any visiting bands have to use Australian bands as their opener. Oh, not, interesting. You're not allowed to bring an opener. Plus, it's just too expensive. Yeah. You have to fly everywhere. Oh, right. There's right. no there's no buses. It's all fly stuff. So that alone just made it, you know, yeah, impossible. Prohibitive. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think that was the deal. They had to have an Australian artist. Huh. So that would that would have been sweet. That would have been really sweet. Yeah. My brother had just moved over there. I think at that time he lives in Melbourne with his family, and oh, I, haven't, cool. I haven't been over yet. So. Oh, cool. Oh man, so, that's a bucket list thing for me. Yes, you know yes. Australian tour. Oh yeah, you know, yep. maybe next year. <laughs> <laughs> um, how um, 
how was the the pandemic uh how did that affect kind of your 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 creative output your your energy i mean i i i follow you obviously on instagram and and you're really dialing in um your video content you know like almost yeah. once a day i feel like or once every other day you're sharing uh, different grooves, different gear, different, you know, mic placements. Um, was that something that developed last year or has this always been a thing? It's, it's always been a thing. Like, uh, I've always been, uh, I've been into recording for a, a few years now. I did, you know, had a little studio at my old place. Um, and I'm no, I'm no expert by any means, but I've, I've, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed the engineering side of things when I, you know, when I got into it properly. I've been recording myself for practice purposes since about 2003. With I used to use Nuendo at first, but it was only 2010 when I moved here and met somebody who's using Pro Tools. I started using Pro Tools, and I was like, "Well, I've got this house now. I'm going to build a studio and take this a little seriously." And I took some courses, just you know, basic Pro Tools videos about compression and EQ, and you know. That with a little bit of knowledge in your ears, you can go a long way. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's really not that, not that it's not that difficult, but it's, it's, well, it's not, it's not like a dark art. It's like, no. it's pretty straight up. Yeah. There are know. some, there are some, you know, pretty straightforward things mm-hmm. to get under your, your, your fingers. And that's yeah. it. It's not that, not that much uh, before you can really make a difference to what you've recorded. And, and yeah, you know, um, so because I had a studio, I would, you know, get on gear sluts and look about mic placement and stuff like that and read about gear. And um, so I've always been into recording and trying to get that better. And I started doing the video thing before before the pandemic, um, just as a way to sometimes document, like you said, gear or what I'm practicing or whatever. Um, but definitely in the last year, I've obviously had more time. You know, my church gig went away. Most of the gigs went away in the middle of March. Uh, and so I found myself at home a lot. And um, I thought, well, I might as well hone. Might as well just, I'm in here every day. I might as well start working on my mixes for the phone, basically. Because mm-hmm. most people, mm-hmm. you want them to listen with headphones. But ultimately, they're scrolling and they're listening right through their tiny little speakers. Right. And so I was, I wanted to get the mix really good for that. You know, I just started huh. spending a little more time and looking at just a couple of different plugins. Nothing, nothing big, really. Nothing, it's not like a major secret or anything like right. that. Yeah. But I did start to notice that people started commenting on my mixing and, and my sounds and how do you do this and how do you do that. And a few people have asked now if I'm going to do a video on tuning and recording and to me it's really all just very simple stuff i don't have expensive mics i i think the the two the two pieces of gear that i have that that make a difference are my um converter huh. i use a an a older apogee ad16x converter which was used like raymond lamontaine records and stuff like that it still okay. gets used huh. it's not like a typical interface like you see everybody have now where right. it's all in one like all the mic pre's and everything's all in one this is separate it just it's just all it does is um analog to digital mm-hmm. Hmm. that's it it's just uh but that's what the money is like uh, when I when I first got that and did a recording, I noticed how much more accurate the recording was, and it's because of the conversion. Mm. R- you know, that's 
there are some converters that are nine, ten thousand dollars just just for the converter. This is not one of those. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think because of that uh, and just a slight knowledge of of some gear and some mic placement, you know, yeah, might set you aside from some other people. I don't know, but right. it. it, it it surprised me at first because I thought all I was doing was trying to make my stuff sound as good as the people I thought sounded good already, mm-hmm. you know? So that's all I, mm. I'm trying to do. That's um, funny that you say you were you were mixing for the phone, not even for like earbuds. You're saying just to play it on your phone. Yeah. It's wow. going to sound good in the earbuds anyway. Right. That's true. You know, You'll have some more, things, yeah. you definitely like the earbuds, it's going to sound, it will sound really good. One thing... Uh, like mixing drums when you've got those tiny little speakers it's tough to get low end coming sure. through without distorting so that was a that's something I've been trying to work on yeah. uh, and then toms sometimes I might have the toms louder than I would uh, if I was just mixing for speakers right because I want the toms because they're low end right on those little speakers you know right. so I might have them up a little bit in the mix just so they come through the phone speakers a little more right. it's stuff like that you yeah. know it's just it's interesting it is because I listen to you know there are some there are some mixes on, on out there that are just amazing you know and it's mm-hmm. just I know there are real some real pros working on this stuff so that's all I was just I'm always working on something I'm yeah. never I'm not a hashtag drum cover guy I'm not I'm not on Instagram to get 10,000 followers and a free symbol you know I'm not because you know and there's nothing wrong with the guys that do that like if you want to if you want to play along with an electronic piece of music and blow over it all day until you get it perfect and then post it that's fine and there, there are thousands and hundreds of thousands of people who want to see that but you know, Instagram, it's, it's a jungle and right. you really, I've, I've, I filter out all of that stuff because I don't, I know where to find it if I want to see it. I know the drummers who I enjoy watch, watching doing that. Otherwise, you know, give me Aaron Sterling who plays with John Mayer. Like give yeah. me, give me the guys that are doing what I want to be doing. Ash Zone who plays with Delamitri and everybody else. Guys that are making records, getting great sounds like that's why i'm there i'm there for that network of stuff not the drum cover side of things at all you know it's just not it's not my thing it's just so much um so much noise yeah Yeah. it really is i don't mind being stuck uh, in my creative space you know right i can always find something and that's uh you know, sometimes I get inspired by Instagram, either a drummer or otherwise. I follow artists and all kinds of people, so I can get inspired there. But other times, other times it's a blank slate. Other times, if I don't have something specific to work on, but I want to play, I'll just pick a tempo. Ah. I'll just pick. I'll just be like, okay, I'm f- have about ninety-eight beats a minute, and just put it in, and yeah. just see what comes out. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's. I still record it and film it because you never know. Right. Uh, and I, I like to record everything anyway because then I can listen back and sure. it's the best way to improve is to listen to yourself recorded. Yeah. You know, there's no better critic than yourself when you hear right. yourself. You almost immediately know that's good, that's not good, don't do that again, <laughs> don't drag there the next time. Like for me, I'm listening back right. and making all these mental fixes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost, you know. Yeah. Well, shoot, man. Uh, 
I kept you longer than I thought. I think I've I been said, talk, talking too much. No, no, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> uh, but we're also both out of wine, so we, we need are to, out we, of wine. We need to fix this. Uh, Roy, thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks, man. Uh, thanks I loved hearing me. how you got to Phoenix and and what you've been working on. And and anyway, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. And I hope we get to make music again. Yes, because we did uh, we did the Tom Petty Wildflowers thing. Yes, we, we did. did the Benz, the Radiohead. I mean. I hope we get to do some more of that stuff. In Absolutely, the yeah. That's those are two projects I'm really proud of. They were really so much fun, really fun. I'd love to do those again. Good, yeah. All right, all right. Talk to you soon. All right, bye, Brian. <laughs> bye, Roy. <laughs> bye, Brian. So the story goes.